Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Remember a time when central banks pretended to be independent? Is that actually a good thing? The fact that they say they control the economy and yet they are unelected. Is that a good starting point unless you believe their decisions are based on irrefutable science? Yeah, right. But that aside, has their independence disappeared this year with the coronavirus? And does that mean they'll never go back? We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So as debt from COVID-19 racks up, Steve, I'm hearing a lot of of regular people, not economists, just normal people saying that government debt is going to be written off somehow. There's this assumption that, you know, if it keeps on rising, somehow it's just not going to be paid. And I think that's because people have got used to this idea now. They've heard in the news the term quantitative easing. So I think in most people's minds... Uh, the, uh, the the government issues debt, the central bank buys it up and it ends there. And I, I just wonder whether that's uh, accepted wisdom now. I, I don't think people fully understand the process, uh, but people are now thinking, oh, you, you know, there's no way the government's going to insist that uh, uh, that they have to pay the money back. It's all it's all just going to be written off. It'd yeah, be I mean, nice if that happened, wouldn't it? But I, I'm, but I don't think the government or the central bank see it that way. No, you've got the... the because the people they listen to aren't the people on the street; they're the people on Wall Street. Mm. And uh, in that world, if you did that, you wipe out the value of their assets because a lot of that debt is owned by the financial sector. So to talk about writing the debt off also means writing off their asset, and they're not about to en- entertain that in a hurry. But if the if if through quantitative easing those those assets have been bought um, by the central bank, then you're not they're not losing out, are they? Well, not, no, when you when you got QE and you're actually getting them to um, to buy um, government bonds directly, not QE, but what they're doing with um, you know, maybe called QC, quantitative COVID. Um, <laughs> but with with that, with that, they are the central bank is directly buying the treasury bonds, so it completely bypasses the uh, private sector borrowing, and therefore, you know, it's a classic case of the government being in debt to itself. And I think that's probably why people are making the it's very, the very genuinely logical leap uh, to say, well, it doesn't really matter anyway, does it? Because we write to ourselves, if, a, if the government owes it to itself, it can just cancel it out. It nets out to zero. And uh, But in the meantime, by having creating it, we're actually putting money into the private sector, so we're benefiting from it. So in that weird sort of way, it's a weird lesson about MMT. Well, well I mean, how far? We're not actually that far from it, are we? So... So if if bonds are issued, then bought by the Bank of England, the interest paid on those on those coupons for the for the duration that the the Bank of England is holding onto them, uh, I mean, surely that's not going to make much difference because that that is the Treasury paying back the Bank of England. That's like me paying a loan back to myself. And I think so the in the case, qu- yeah, I think in the case of the British system, you, they don't. 
the Treasury doesn't have to pay interest on any bonds that are owned by the central bank. Bank, there right. So some yeah, countries will be a nonsense it and anyway. you pay it back. Yeah, so there's yeah, but I mean, either way, it's just bookkeeping. You know, I mean, it's a nonsense if you pay it back because you own the bank anyway. Mm. Um, but, but but if you get so so you're halfway there to uh, uh, to MMT. So the only question is what happens at the end when those bonds mature if they're still held by the uh, by the Bank of England. Um, what happens at that point? And I guess they would say, well, okay, you've, the, the, you know, the, again, it's the same deal, isn't it? You know, so the Treasury has to pay the Bank of England, but the Treasury owns the Bank of England. So, mm. I mean, if they're not, yeah, they just roll it over. So, if it's not passed back onto the open market, if they don't try and reduce their balance sheet and they just accept that, uh, you know, maybe it's a three year, uh, a, a, a three year maturation when you get to the end of that three years. If those those are being bought by the central bank, that's MMT, isn't it? I mean, it's just mm. the the process is uh, the process to get there is a little bit long and convoluted. And is it really impacting the financial sector? Not really, because they've uh, the moment they uh, that those the, the bonds that they owned for a short time went back to the Bank of England or went to the Bank of England, their involvement in the whole process stopped. And they also get a because the Bank of England's buying the bonds, not not just the ones they're buying directly of Treasury, buying others off the central, off the financial sector as well. The financial sector is getting money, uh, which with no return in return for bonds with a positive return. They've made a capital gain on selling the bonds, but uh, they now have to get income out of the new assets, non-income earning assets they've got. So what they do, of course, is go and buy shares, and that's yes. partly where the cake. And of course, the money when they've bought it, the money that they buy is redeposited back on the reserves again, so they can't get rid of it. It's, and the classic hot potato effect comes yeah. back at you. Um, but yeah, that's that's had a huge impact on on the um, on the financial sector in its favour, uh, which is one reason again why they wouldn't be too fond of. Uh, of seeing that uh, scheme come to an end, but does it make any difference whether you know whether the bonds were ever issued? I mean, what's the difference between the bonds being issued and then just disappearing into the into the Bank of England versus those bonds just not being issued at all and the Treasury just having uh, run an overdraft with the Bank of England? As far as yeah. the finance sector, does it change too much? No, not at all. And that's the thing: the only real function of selling bonds to the financial sector is so that the Treasury can maintain a non-negative bank balance at the central bank, which mm. it owns, you know. So, um, you know, you, I mean, I, do, I mentioned you've been in overdraft and sometimes in your small business career. Yeah. 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 I've been I've been the same and it just means you pay, you know, rather than getting a positive interest rate, uh, you get a larger negative one that goes to the bank on your deposit account. And you try, you try like blazers to reduce it because it's more expensive and you face all sorts of consequences. But if you owned the bank, you wouldn't give a damn about it. And that's the situation the Treasury is in. It could run a negative balance and it could even tell the central bank not to worry about it and nobody would be any the wiser. So the big question, though, which is what I wanted to talk about today, um, is if you're in that situation, then, uh, you know, basically the government and the Bank of England are, are colluding, aren't they, on, on monetary policy and fiscal policy, and they're supposed to be independent of each other. I mean, the, the argument would be from central banks is that we, we manage loans, we don't issue debt. I mean, we, they would be issuing debt in, in, in that scenario, and uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy would be, would be in collusion with each other, which, of yeah. course, is happening anyway with COVID. I mean, it's a nonsense to think that they're, they're operating independently of each other right now. Oh, that's the thing. I mean, this is another case where reality has put a, a large blow into 
um, what was seen as institutional arrangements, but were actually ideology that the bank should be independent. The whole reason, well, there's two reasons. The, the politicians themselves loved the idea of central bank independence because it meant they would themselves no longer carry the opprobrium for putting up interest rates when that was what the normal thing with the government was doing back in the inflationary uh, late 60s and, uh, uh, and 70s through to 80s. So the governments then were happy to hand over the, you know, the, um, the, the, the negative of putting up interest rates. Now in the opposite world, interest rates are falling. Um, and it's because the central banks thought they were the experts. They wanted to do it as well. They thought they knew how the economy operated and their confidence was blasted out of the water by the financial crisis. And they still don't know what they're doing in the aftermath. So how does, how does currency play into all of this? If we've got a, uh, isn't there a danger? If you, if you, a country that issues lots of new currency, as a matter of course, but but investors are locked out of uh, out of buying uh, the government's bond um, from the, in the open market because they're all being bought up by the central bank. Like gilts, for example, hard to get because the Bank of England is is snaffling them all up. Um, then I'd imagine that would mean that what's left would be relatively expensive. Um, and what does that do for for currencies? Because they they do all play. I mean. The, the purchases of bonds is a big driver of, uh, well, a big influence and of inflows and outflows into a, into a country and therefore is a, has a big impact on the currency. And obviously the impact on the currency has a has an impact on the, the, the value of uh, or the cost of exports and imports for that country. They are, it's a, obviously economics is a complex system. I'm just interested <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the broader play. <laughs> That's the understatement of the, of the decade, isn't it? I think but so. But I'm just interested in the, in the broader play between bond markets and currencies and how if you, if, if the government isn't issuing enough bonds, how that's influencing the, the flow of money in and out of their country? Well, I think uh, let's take Japan as our example there, which has been issuing bonds willy-nilly for 30 years now and uh, is still able to do it and still hasn't had to make an international uh, sale of its bonds because although they were bought domestically in Japan. So the problem of this having an impact on the currency comes out of running a trade deficit. And of course, that's mm. what the UK does do, and America, and normally Australia, uh, not not uh, Europe, but they don't have a, they don't have their own central bank anyway. Um, you know, as a national level central bank. So several of the countries that uh, have been doing this are well insulated by their trade surpluses. Others. The problem is not that they're running a deficit; it's that they've got a trade deficit. But you've got to issue some bonds, haven't you, for people who want to buy, basically buy into buy your currency. So, when when we hear that uh, you know that the, there's a rush towards the yen because it's a safe haven currency, and I guess it's only a safe haven currency because of that uh, because of that trade surplus that people mm. know that uh, uh, that they're still producing stuff and there's money still coming into the into the into the country. People are buying those bonds, though, aren't they? When, when they when we are buying those bonds, yeah, yeah. yeah so you've got to have those bonds available for foreigners to buy. You can't, you, your central bank can't buy all of them. You've got to issue some on the open market. Yeah, I and mean, that's um, partially the um, salve to QE that you, know, you have to have them there anyway to some extent. Um, taking them out of circulation actually gets to be a problem because you, the financial sector markets wants to have those as part of their portfolio. Both for hedging, hedging of it, largely for hedging reasons. But mm. yeah, um, it's it, the last thing the private banking sector wants to see is see government debt disappear, which is ironic because a lot of people in the financial sector are also people who reckon there should be no government debt. So it's ideology and reality crashing, and as usual, ideology wins. 
Or maybe they don't understand the system. I mean, that's a new. You, you oh, made please, the point no, you, well, such an accusation. You, can, you, <laughs> you made the point that you can work right in the heart of it, but you still don't understand what's surrounding you. Look, mm. I mean, St- Stephanie Kelton's excellent book, which I did enjoy because it's so accessible, isn't it? it uh, is, she yeah. made the point that that you made that you know the the only reason governments issue bonds is to maintain the illusion of being financially constrained. So if we didn't issue them, then the bond investors would, would lose out. They wouldn't earn interest. And what would they do with their money? As you said, they'll probably inflate share prices and house prices. So it's not such a such a good thing. So there has to be a level, doesn't there, for the reasons we've outlined for that reason and also, uh, you know, for, as, as some, something for people to buy when they're, they're buying into your into your currency. You've got to get the, there's a balance there, so that's the that's the role of the central bank, surely, to try and say, well, okay, out of all the all of the debt that's been issued by the government, we've got to find the right balance. There's a job for them to try to find a job for the central bank if the treasury's doing it all, but maybe their job is to say, well, okay, we've got to work out to maintain. And to, to try and make sure that we're not getting uh, asset price inflation out of their areas, we've got to work out what proportion of the, the, those bonds that we issue go out onto the open market. Yeah, and then that's that's a functional role for the central bank rather than a management role. Because when they when they said they wanted for central bank independence, it also ran with the development of the uh, first of all the new classical and then the so called new Keynesian approach to macro, where the central bank played a central role because its interest rate changes control the level of the economy and inflation. And the only, and, and in, in that situation, they wanted to have uh, you know, not so much the bond issuing side of things because they're all anti, anti-deficits to begin with, most mainstream economists, in, a, in an ideological way. Not They're not really all that aware of it, but yeah, they're anti-government debt. Um, but they wanted to set the interest rate. Now, that, that's going well beyond what politicians thought they were agreeing to when they agreed to independence because you want independence for the sort of functions you're talking about, uh, uh, but not the type of thing where they're trying to control the economy as, as if they are the only ones who know how to do it. Because the other thing they're trying to control, supposedly, is inflation. But that's not a – I mean, if the if the government is there – I mean – Depends on what what you think causes inflation, whether whether it's 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 wages that are pushing inflation or whether it's the supply of money. But if the government is in charge of the supply of money because they're using it to determine through modern monetary theory how much uh, how much they create based on how much they're prepared to spend, then they're in charge of inflation on that basis, aren't they? Well, I mean, the, the central banks thought they were in charge of it because that's what their, their uh, real business cycle model told them was the case, that they, by the, the interest rate was the thing which controlled the inflation rate and the, the output gap, as they call it, in their models. Um, so they really thought central bank independence was, was a, a, a cover for letting neoclassical economists run the economy. Uh, where those economists began with the belief that the interest rate was the only control variable that mattered and the deficit, if anything, was a negative. Um, so I'm happy, to, I'm anti that form of central bank independence because it's giving independent con- um, power to a bunch of economists who don't understand the economy they're supposedly managing. And that's, that's what I think would be in a real danger of all this. If they actually understood, if their model was correct, if their model was a correct description of how capitalism functions, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all, nor would we be having the crises that have occurred since they managed to get uh, supreme control back in the mid eighties. Right. So really, inflation should be controlled by the treasury. Then, if we if we were going down the MMT road, they'd control inflation based on how much money they're spending and how many jobs they're creating. Yeah, I mean, you, you, 
it, it's you know, if you look at what actually helps cause inflation, and on this front, it's like it's more complex than just saying it's uh, the government's scale of the deficit, which is one of the ways of creating money into the into the economy. I've been just taking on that line that I've developed recently of saying it could drive macro from macro itself to include uh, including inflation in a model with uh, not just real you know, real output but nominal output as well. And it turned out that the rate of growth of the inflation equation was money wages minus changes in the distribution of income minus uh, labor productivity. And I got quite a surprise when I saw the sign that came out for the wages share of income. It was negative. Uh, so an uh, increase in the wages share would actually reduce uh, inflation. But it turns out that that um, indicator of the wages share of GDP is actually the markup that capitalists put on output when you, when you look at an overall pricing equation. I know I'm getting pretty hairy here, pardon me, but I just want to, want to finish with it. Uh, yeah. It's distribution of income effects that cause inflation, not uh, the interest rate and and not uh, not so much demand pressures. That that does turn up in the, um, in the wage, in the, in the wage setting, which is determined by the level of economic activity in the economy. But uh, the level of output, you know, level of output uh, and the level of employment helps determine what the wage, the wage rate is. So you do have inflation coming in in that direction from the level of economic activity, but a large part of it is uh, the combination of struggles over the distribution of income, and workers mm-hmm. have lost out really badly over that in the last 30 years, and that's partly why we've had deflation. Right, and and is why when just before Margaret Thatcher came into power, we were we were seeing uh, and really. Why she came into power was because we were seeing large-scale inflation in the UK. I mean, up to you know reaching twenty-five percent, I think, at one stage, and the, the unions were particularly strong. Uh, the miners were on strike. You know, we had the three-day week, and uh, you know, the miners really uh, uh, pushing hard to try and get their, their their wages higher. Strangely, the response from Margaret Thatcher on that was uh, listening to Milton Friedman was that well, you know, it's obvious how we need to control that. We need to control the money supply. It, it was, um, you and know, what you was, had was, I mean, the, the policy that was taken both in the UK and, and America uh, was on the belief that if you simply put up the rate of interest, you would ultimately reduce inflationary expectations and call in for inflation to fall, and it would be a sort of short, sharp adjustment of people's expectations rather than a serious downturn. In fact, both of them caused massive recessions, which weakened the power of organised labour and led to the situation we're in now of permanent deflation. So I'm still trying to figure out in all of this then, if we went down a, a, a sort of a, a, an MMT road, mm. what are what are the targets for the government and what's the target for the central bank? Or is, is the future really to actually say, well, there is no independence, there is no separate job for the Bank of England. The Bank of England... You know, you can be the banker's bank, basically. You can make sure that banks don't fall over. But really, the the real job of managing the economy, controlling inflation and making sure that we have full employment, that's the job of the Treasury. Yeah, I think it comes back to that. And you've got, you've got to say that the even in terms of a, any argument about democracy, um, the argument in favour of central bank independence and control was anti-democratic in the belief that they were the experts. Now, they've proven that's not the case. Um, yeah. So there is not advantage. Elected. Yeah, going back to the days when we say that the it's the, in the democratic principles alone, the treasury should be where those decisions are made. And then when we understand the mechanics of money creation uh, and that the role that that has in determining economic activity and ultimately also potentially inflation, then that's the area where you want the discussions to be held. But what about the setting of uh, of interest rates, which 
obviously very often, you know, I mean, it's a a combination of you know how much money is there, uh, how many bonds are there, you know, the 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 ability for you to to buy stuff is you know determined by the supply of those bonds. How much? How are we going to control interest rates in this? Uh, uh, or do we need to? Do we just set a flat interest rate? Because the because the, the the whole international market aspect of all of this as well. If if you if you're a country that's running MMT and others aren't, like for example, they don't have their own sovereign currency. Um, you know how do, and as we were saying a little earlier, maybe there's a bit of a role for the for the for the central bank in playing on the international side of things. Yeah, well, the central bank, you know, you, you certainly give it the management roles you were talking about earlier, uh, but in terms of setting interest rate independent of other uh, goals, no, uh, it's subservient to other goals. And the other thing I want to control, of course, too, is the level of credit creation and the level of private debt, uh, which are not anything, any part of the um, central bank's thinking right now, but they need to be because that's you know, by far the major determinant of changes in the uh, level in the rate of economic activity changes in credit so I'd, I'd have several targets there and they'd be something where they'd be in you know, a practical elements would be done by the central bank just because it's the institution set up to manage relations with the with the finance sector uh, but the decisions themselves would come from treasury so under mmt if you pu- you push money into the economy when uh, when you need it, when there's a, a need for stimulus, when there's a concern that the economy is running too hot and perhaps you are starting to see inflation because everybody's got a job and so they're demanding higher wages, that's actually what's driving the inflation, isn't it? It's the it's the wage push rather than there being too much money. It's the fact that everyone's everyone's exactly, got a job. Yeah. And that's the point so, of that equation I talked about earlier. Yeah. So when you so when you get to that stage, uh, then um, you you want to you, you you do want to pull money out of the economy, don't you? You want to start, you want to you want to uh, reduce demand a little bit. So you that's where you push taxation up, presumably. That's that's how you pull money back out of the economy. You push taxes up. Yeah, I've got a feeling that sort of stuff is easier to say than it is to do. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, there's one of one of the problems about uh, even though it's it's true that if you wanted to reduce the level of activity, then you want to reduce the money, the amount of money being created by the government. But um, having a differential tax rate um, certainly is not, I don't think it's practical or feasible uh, as we do it at the moment. If you had like instantaneous transaction taxes and you could modify the amount of those, then maybe that might be effective. But income tax and certainly um, you know, sales tax and things like that, just too cumbersome, too slow yeah, and too and, hard to alter on a regular, regular basis either. And politically quite difficult as well, because you're basically hmm. saying, hey, look, things are going so well, we're going to push taxes up right now, even though we've told you we don't need uh, the money because uh, we can create it. Uh, that's going to blow most people's minds, particularly when you uh, when you think that, uh, you know, you, that the area of the economy you're going to want to slow down is the, the area where money is circulating the fastest, which is going to yeah. be... I mean, that's just just, you, just brand. You, you'd end up in a situation if you follow the theory through. You're going to have to tax the poor more than you're taxing the rich because yeah, they're spending yeah. faster. I'm, I'm trying to think of a of a mechanism that might work, and one might be simply having a level of money creation targeted at some moderately discretionary activity. Let's let's say, for example, giving everybody money they've got to spend on crowdfunding, um, mm. and uh, and then when you have a decline in um, when you, when you get too much economic activity and you want to cut it back, you reduce the amount they get for crowdfunding, but that money goes into a long-term fund instead, uh, which is there to support the entrepreneurs, your previous uh, 
system has encouraged to come into operation. Because, again, one of the great dangers of this is you don't want to have the trade cycle replaced by what Kolesky called the political trade cycle, um, having booms and slumps timed with the times of uh, parties coming into power and so on. And that that is the only argument really in favour of of uh, removing control of de- deficit decisions and interest rate decisions from politicians, getting away from the pork barrelling temptation that exists there. So there, there is in that sense of a valid reason to talk in favour of, ind- of independence of policy makers. Um, but it's gone... F- the, what it's let us do is handed, you know, handing over design of a, uh, our rocket system to people who believe in Ptolemy's theory of astronomy, and that's what I think. It's, it, it, if we'd done this with with a th- economic theory that actually properly understood capitalism, I don't think we'd have quite the travesties we're experiencing now. But we would have the, the I mean, you mentioned the lag effect. We'd, we'd, we'd still be struggling with that. Of course, central banks always use the lag effect as an excuse for why they didn't get things quite right. Uh, but it would be the same, wouldn't it, for modern monetary theory, that if you're putting too much money into the economy. Like, like last week, we were talking about the value of uh, of old age pensioners and mm. uh, how they are still consumers. And so, you know, the, if you gave them more money, uh, if you doubled the amount of old age pension, then they'd spend it and that would be good for the economies. And in fact, we're doubling the value of old age pensioners by doubling the, the amount of money that we're giving them. So mm. the, um, but if you did that and then all of a sudden you found, oh, that was a big mistake because they are spending it and then there's not enough of the products that they want. And so that's causing inflation. We need to pull back from that. You can't, you can't go back and say, "Oh, well, look, we want to we want to go back and halve your uh, your pension again." Half your pension, yeah, yeah. So, it, how do, yeah. I mean, it, so MMT that that is the big problem, isn't it? How do you how do you pull back from where you've gone? Mm. Well, you and, don't necessarily need to go all that far. This is the yeah. other element. You know, what scale of spending do you want? Yeah. Um, and, it's incrementalism, isn't it? Really. Well, not yeah, but it's sort of saying what's what's a reasonable measure, and certainly a, you need a, a government sector which grows at the same rate as the economy itself is growing uh, to sort of maintain the current you know size size imbalance, and that implies a deficit of about three percent of GDP, uh, three to six percent. It doesn't imply twenty and thirty and forty percent. So if you if you did it, and you then also reduce the encouragement people face right now to go into private debt because they. Uh, you know, they're anticipating capital gains out of levered speculation. Uh, I think a lot of that was driven by the, the government taking money out of circulation anyway and not creating enough in the first place and then leading to the sort of damaging speculation we've seen. With the government creating more money in a more regular way, I think it'd have less of that temptation to get into private sector debt and less volatility, uh, which would give you less need to worry about the issues we spoke about in the first place. I wonder whether central banks can have a role in uh, in trying to hold things back. You know, it, it feels like the idea of having two forces working side by side, not pulling apart, which is often the way, isn't it, between monetary policy and uh, and, and fiscal policy. Because very, mm. you know, I mean, in normal times, you might think, well, okay, there's too much fiscal policy, so the central bank pushes up interest rates, thereby negating any of <laughs> any of the benefits of that fiscal policy. I mean, that mm. is just a nonsense when they work against each other. But if they if they work together, 
uh, and then one is there just as a controlling influence. So I'll give you an example. I had an interview with Sir Paul Tucker this week, who is a former deputy governor of Is Tucker sumptuous or the Tucker's pretty basic? <laughs> which, pretty, uh, ordinary, pretty ordinary we're Tucker. Talking about, we're talking about t- t- the, the attacking ba- ba- in. Basic, basic, basic ordinary Tucker. We're talking about Lord, if you missed it, we were talking about Lord Sumption uh, last week, who was uh, basically saying uh, old people's lives aren't uh, worth as much as young people's. And we called him Lord Sumptuous in case you missed it. So, yes, yeah, Sir Paul Tucker, who does imagine, you do imagine um, him, it's sort of like in a rather large belly tucking into his food, don't you? But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he's a former deputy governor of the Bank of England. He says, uh, we shouldn't, you know, you might like him, so let's not degrade him. He says, fiscal policy should be taking the burden of stimulating the economy with central banks only there as a check if things go wrong because monetary policy is pushing on a string. We've heard that expression before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but we know, he says, central banks do a good job of constraining the economy if they need to. So he's talking about interest rates, obviously, isn't he? So yeah, uh, if the, it, yeah. So if the but could could that work? So if the if the government is there and it's applying modern monetary theory and it's it's pumping more money into the economy, but it's pumped in too much, would pushing up interest rates solve that problem? No, and this is this is where Minsky's insights into a world of fundamental uncertainty. Uh, versus the economic model of a, of a world where you where the future is certain and all you're doing is changing your discount rate, um, the whole idea of interest rates reducing consum- reducing economic activity is based on the idea that uh, we all have a rate of time time discount, and if there's an increase in interest rate, it's worth our while as as savers to hang on to money because it's we're going to get more for it in the future, and if you're valuing an investment project, you're going to use a higher discount rate, so the high interest rate will reduce the level of investment. And that sees the interest rate as a sort of fine-tuning mechanism on the level of investment. But as Keynes argued uh, very clearly back in the general theory, and plenty of post-Keynesians have added in since, we live in a world of fundamental uncertainty. You don't know the future by any stretch of imagination. In that case, the most important thing which is going to determine how much you invest are your expectations of profit, uh, not the interest rate you've got to use as a discount. So if, the, if you're going to make interest rates have an impact, then you've got to make it like a club on the scale of what Vockler did back in the 1980s, dramatically increasing interest rates so much that the financial costs of that caused the, lots of uh, country companies to fail and caused a recession. Um, so it's not a fine-tuning instrument but at all. What about house, what, what it does to house prices? Because we, okay, based on what you've just said, everyone has this strange belief that house prices will always go up and therefore they're mm. always going to profit from it. So even if I'm paying more interest in the short term, that doesn't matter because when I sell a house, it's going to be worth so much more uh, than it, it did when I bought it. Um, and yet... When interest rates do go up, we do get a short-term response that fewer people buy houses. I mean, it does it does slow down asset price inflation, doesn't it? And maybe that's the only thing central banks need to do. Well, that's the thing that they've ignored, actually, and they've actually helped cause central. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, they, and they say it's yeah. not their they say it's not their job, in fact, uh, to be concerned about that. But, but in maybe fact, it should be. quantitative easing was was you can actually quote Bernanke, I think, from two thousand and nine, maybe two thousand and ten, that the objective of here was to drive up asset prices. Mm. So far from not taking them seriously, they they didn't worry about. Um, they don't worry about asset prices rising. They 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 encourage them to rise. 
Well, and that's because they have this belief that that money is going to trickle down, that the mm, people who mm. uh, benefit from Lord from Sumptuous those, under Lord, uh, Lord Tucker. Via Lord Tucker. From Sumptuous uh, under the Tucker, yeah. <laughs> down to us. Down to us mere mortals of lesser mm. value. Mm. But we know that's not the case. I'm, I'm t- still trying to find the central bank. If we, if we accept the fact that central banks do have a role... Is it? Are they literally there just to make sure other banks don't fall over, and all the rest of it falls on the on the on the government? I, I think, in the sense of being the organisation that has to administer the financial sector, yeah, largely, uh, that's one. That's probably their mm. their, their vital role. Um, interest rate setting, um, fiscal policy, um, targets for the level of private debt, et cetera, et cetera. You might get some specialisation amongst them, but the decisions have to be at the political level. Right. And will we get there, given that we are so much closer to it than we have ever been, you know, for decades? Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I never thought I'd need to update my work on the a modern debt jubilee because I thought it had, you know, two chances happening, uh, Buckley's and none, yeah. for those who don't know they're Australian. Um, and, and now, of course, it's looking like it's actually, to some extent, feasible in the aftermath of COVID. So, yeah, these things can happen. But, um, again, it... It's so outside the realms of possibility for, the, for sensible policy to apply that I, I have a hard time even considering it. And Janet Yellen, as the uh, new Treasury Secretary in the US, is that a good thing or, mm. or a bad thing? What, what are your thoughts uh, on that? Pretty pedestrian. I mean, not as, not, not as pedestrian as Bernanke, but uh, she's not a sprinter in comparison either. My favourite give on her was that, too, she, she did speak once at the Jerome Levy Institute in upstate New York, which was the centre that actually sponsored Hyman Minsky for most of his final years. In fact, I spent my sabbatical there back in 2000 uh, writing debunking economics in Hyman Minsky's office. That's one of the highlights of my intellectual career. Anyway, there was an annual Hyman Minsky conference held at Bard College and she attended, I think in about 1997, and her topic was how fantastic it was that we've developed derivatives because this can control risk in the financial sector. And that's 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 a pretty good start. You know, bang, so CDOs blow up and destroy the known world in pretty much the year she spoke, then 2000, then 2007. Mm. So she came back after the financial crisis, about 2009, I think, and spoke at another conference. And there she sort of did a mea culpa for getting it wrong the last time. But she actually, and she quoted Minsky. Now, I didn't, you know, I don't like him painful little bastard. I said, which Minsky paper did she quote? When take a look at I've never seen that one before. And then I went it was it was virtually handwritten note that was stored on the digital resources of Bard College. So I think all that happened was she said, I need a quote from Minsky. I need a paper from Minsky. Can somebody find me a Minsky paper? And a bunch of economists who don't even know that Minsky used to publish in academic journals went searching through the Jerome Levy Institute, found that link for her and put it in her bibliography. So I think she knows bugger all about Minsky. But she might be learning. But she might be learning. I mean, it seems like she's come a long way. So Why do we put slow learners in charge of economic <laughs> policy? <laughs> well, maybe because, maybe because we, we don't know what to look for. The um, But she, mm. I mean, she was this week, last week, I should say, uh, talking about uh, uh, in in the hearing before she was a, made the uh, you know given a given a new gig. She was treasury, saying, secretary, treasury yeah. secretary, saying that uh, yeah, we should spend big. Uh, she didn't seem too concerned about how that money was going to be paid back. Maybe she's um, maybe well, she's there's possible. I mean, it, it, maybe you know, having, having put it down before. Having put it down beforehand, I, mean, I haven't read anything she's written in recent years, and and I don't think you'd actually necessarily see it in what they write either, because there's an extent to which central banks, certainly prominent ones, are, are controlled in what they can actually let be published. Um, 
You don't, they don't want to scare the horses by letting it know that they run, might have read Stephanie Colton, for example. Exactly. Um, yeah, so there, there is a possibility of some hidden learning that's gone on there mm. um, that, that we're not party to. And she and was so saying, she, she, be was, she was saying, yeah. even before Jerome Powell uh, came on the scene, and then Jerome Powell picked up the same line: "We've done as much as we can now. It, it you know, it's up to the government. It's up to uh, it's up to fiscal stimulus." I mean, if that yeah, would- and that's the interesting thing. Mm. Yeah, it, it comes back and bites for the whole people. The people who argued for central bank independence in the past were were central bank bankers and neoclassical economists who thought that would mean they'd be in charge and therefore everything would be fantastic. Yeah. Well, they are in charge and it's been a total stuff up. Yeah, and then they say, well, you know, and we've done as much as we can now. It's over to you guys. Um, yeah. Monetarism isn't working for us. Thank you for the hot potato. You can have it back. Yeah, uh, and uh, what a shame Friedman isn't here to uh, tell us what he thinks. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, he'll be uh, won't be turning in his grave. He'll be going. Thank God, I'm out of that game. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again next week. Okay, mate. Right. Not sure uh, what we're going to talk about next week, though. So maybe that's a chance for you to jump in before we think of something. You can uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find us uh, at Phil Dobby or at Professor Steve or Prof Steve Keen. Uh, that's it for this week, though. I'm Phil Dobby. Back again with Steve next week. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.